welcome to the Liberated Porch Podcast. I'm your host, Kit Morgan, licensed social worker and therapist. Join me as I sit down with guests to chat about finding liberation through social justice and mental health. Dr. Mink is a clinical psychologist, somatic experiencing practitioner, and owner of Resonant Psychology, a California private practice specializing in body-oriented trauma resolution therapies. Dr. Mink also specializes in recovery from religious trauma and spiritual abuse. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited that you're here. Me too. Very excited to nerd out on these subjects. Oh my gosh. Yes, definitely. You know, with somatics, I didn't even really hear about it whenever I was in grad school. I did a master of social work. Ah, Same. Yeah. Yeah. And that was so wild to me because, you know, they would talk about spirituality and, you know, you can be atheist and also be spiritual Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And so they, they really did talk about these nuances. And I think in a lot of ways, they were talking about somatics. They just didn't call it somatics. Oh, totally. Like it's been around, right? Peter Levine, the creator of somatic experiencing, started kind of doing this work in the 60s and 70s, published his big book, Waking the Tiger in the 90s. And I didn't hear it. I mean, I graduated, I'm going to age myself here. I graduated my doctorate in 2014 and they didn't mention a name. They didn't mention somatics. It hadn't no. really fully caught on at that point. I think it's been the last five, six years that I've seen it become pretty big, actually. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that timeline is so fascinating because (laughs) so he started developing this in the 60s and 70s. And then it was post-Vietnam War that PTSD became a diagnosis. Exactly. With people's growing interest about somatics, it's mainly been geared towards trauma and work with PTSD. Yeah, that's how he started, actually, is how to work with veterans, how to work with shock trauma. And it's still very relevant to that. Part of our training program is working with shock trauma, but he's really opened it up. There's a wealth of knowledge now on how to work with um, childhood trauma, developmental trauma, spiritual abuse, things that you know, we initially hadn't really considered as something we could work with in this way. Yeah. So for our listeners, can you define what shock trauma is? Sure. Yeah. So shock trauma could be like a a single incident sort of event. Okay. So like a car accident, automobile accident, a heart attack, a near drowning incident, uh, a natural disaster any birth complications that someone had, a fall. A lot of elderly people have severe falls that would be considered a shock. Whereas like CPTSD, right, comes from childhood developmental trauma, meaning it's happened more than once. It's happened many times. Someone has been exposed to trauma multiple times. A lot of times that trauma being relational wounding of some sort. Yes. And There's this phrase that is used in diagnosing folks with Mm -hmm. us being psychotherapists. And and for our listeners, it's called returning back to previous level of functioning. Mm -hmm. So what happens with the brain with PTSD or CPTSD is it changes the physiological structure of our brain. So PTSD is just as much of a psychological condition as it is a physiological condition. So whenever looking at that phrase, returning back to previous level of functioning, that can be a pretty difficult phrase for someone who experienced childhood trauma and doesn't Mm -hmm. remember any difference before traumatic events start happening for this person. Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's a huge part of the work that I do, actually, because different types of trauma can present differently. SC is not a specific Somatic experiencing isn't a protocol, protocol like an EMDR sort of therapy. It's a lot of different techniques on how to work with these things because we know, right, I'm paying attention and certainly in the first few sessions with a new client on what sort of self-regulation skills are they coming in with? Is this Mm. something that was fairly well-regulated and then something happened? Or is this somebody that 
has had a long history of not having a caregiver or someone maybe older than them when they were younger that taught them how to regulate their nervous system. So they might be coming in uh, quite reactive, really hard time settling. Yes. And going back to that protocol there. Yeah. So I was trained in levels one and two of EMDR. Ooh, okay. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't practice it. And, <laughs> Same. Same. <laughs> and yeah. here, here's why. Well, number one, I do all telehealth work now. Uh-huh. And EMDR has not been shown yet to be evidence-based over telehealth yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I am only going to be using what is clinical uh, that has been backed by research. And so in doing a therapy that hasn't been backed by research yet for telehealth, that is something that I'm skeptical of and leery of uh, totally, because I like totally. to be mindful of that. And then the other thing is, so I had my employer at the time want all of the therapists to be able to get trained in levels one and two of EMDR. Sure. And so it wasn't my decision to be Mm. doing that. And I was hesitant about it because of some different things that I had heard. And then whenever I went there, Now, I really did like my trainer and my trainer was a therapist who was blind and then which was a very unique perspective for us to be getting. And something that I did learn from this trainer was I learned about somatics from her and she was very, very good at it with being blind. And that opened my just mind to this Mm -hmm. whole new world of somatics, but Going back to the protocol part of EMDR, Mm -hmm. now, this person who I got trained with knows her stuff. She's pretty much, like, internationally renowned. Sure. And she said, in order for EMDR to be considered to be backed by research, you have to follow the script of EMDR. If you do not follow the script, then it's not Mm research-based. So I've heard people say the EMDR therapist didn't seem like they knew what they were doing because they were reading off of a script. But for EMDR, you have to do that or you have to have the script memorized. And I don't think a lot of people know that. Right. Yeah. And see, again, back to that, like self-regulation, right? For, you know, since you're trained in EMDR as well, one of the prompts quite literally is like a phrase of like remembering the worst part of the incident. Yep. (laughs) So it's like, boom, we're going straight in. And um, there's no like really small titration there. You know, again, if someone's coming in maybe with a single incident, shock trauma, they've got a lot of self-regulation, that might be something that's totally fine for them to go into. It might be really healing. But for someone with childhood developmental trauma, that might be really disorienting. I've had several clients come in and say, hey, I, I did EMDR and I had panic attacks. Like, I don't, why didn't it work for me? And mm-hmm. it's probably because, you know, unfortunately, EMDR has its place. Definitely not saying it's not a phenomenal treatment, but it's become this weird, like, cure-all and, like, gold <laughs> standard for trauma treatment. And um, not, like, really considering, like you said, like, is this really evidence-based and like what, who, what populations does it work really well for and what is it probably not helpful for? Exactly. And I have worked with first responders where EMDR has been extremely effective for them. It's helped them complete therapy so much quicker than if we used another form of therapy. However, I have worked with people who have experienced EMDR from past practitioners or from myself included who said, you know what? I don't like EMDR. And it's only been people in the queer community that I've worked with who have said Ooh, that. And so then I, I was like, well, let's explore this more. And then I mm-hmm. started hearing these themes about it with people saying, well, how can we work through the trauma inventory? So the list of traumatic events, whenever yeah. being queer every day is traumatic. Yes. And so then that started getting me to think about marginalized communities 
And what can be done of healing trauma where this can be an ever healing process rather than a process of completion, a procedure? I love what you're putting down. Yes. Um, okay. So trauma is a life healing from trauma is a lifelong process. I will be honest in my personal belief on that. And a lot of somatic practitioners will tell you the mm-hmm. same. We can make tremendous progress. I myself in my life have made tremendous progress yeah. in healing my trauma, but I will never say like I've arrived or I've healed. And mm-hmm. anytime I see a protocol online or a, an Instagram reel or a TikTok saying, Hey, go home and open your hips in this way and you'll release your trauma. Maybe. (laughs) Um, It's not that simple. It's not that simple. And it's also not how we really heal trauma. They're working off the premise that trauma is held in the body, which that's, there's a lot of truth to that, but it's become very like reductionistic. Mm -hmm. Do this thing and you'll heal, you'll release your trauma. Uh, somatic experiencing there's a reason the program is three years long and very Mm -hmm. exhaustive you're working with a lot of different models of somatic healing an endless list of techniques and a lot of intuition Mm -hmm. so it's like there is no one way I've seen so many amazing demos from professors that are radically different but incredibly impactful Um, they are working with the nervous system in front of them they are trained to pay attention to how is this person responding in my office? Not how am I trained to work with religious trauma, right? Yeah. It's like we might have ideas, but we really don't know until that person is with us what we're working with. Oh, exactly. Because, I mean, trauma isn't the incidents that happened. Mm-hmm. It's the way that the body is experiencing it, the mind is experiencing it, the spirit is experiencing it. And something that you're talking about was place, your office, and something that I've just been very curious about asking therapists this as there's more therapists who are working remote or hybrid that are now returning back to the office with where the pandemic is at. And I'm wondering what your experience has been in providing somatic therapy remotely and your experience in person. When I started the training program, it was 2019. Oh, my. Okay. (laughs) And I really committed three years. I joined a cohort in Kentucky because you kind of get placed wherever they have availability for you to train. Mm-hmm. So I made this commitment to fly out. I flew out for a few modules in person. And then literally like in the middle of one of my modules, the pandemic hit and it was like, we're canceling the rest of this module for now. We'll have to reschedule. Everyone needs to fly home. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a little shock to the system there of, oh, my program is going to shift to online. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then my clinical practice at the time too, I was actually working for an agency and not my own private practice went online really quickly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm very old school, <laughs> like even yeah. before somatic training, I was psychoanalytically trained, you know, talking mm-hmm. on the couch in person. So this was a shock, like, how am mm-hmm. I going to be effective? And how am I going to take to an online um, environment? Mm-hmm. Especially with body work. I'm doing body yeah. work. So I expressed those concerns actually to one of my favorite professors in class in the online module. And a lot of people did as well. And wow, it was amazing how well he attended to us and answered our questions. It's, you know, he brought up really pros and cons. It, it won't be for everyone. Some people mm-hmm. will prefer in person or even need it. For mm-hmm. example, right, the third year of training, we're doing touch skills mm-hmm. for the practitioners that will actually do hands-on work. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you want to do touch, you're going to want to be in person or if yeah. you just prefer it in general. What surprised me, and here's a major pro, So much of the somatic experiencing model is creating attunement and safety in the environment for the nervous system to settle, come into coherence and work with the trauma. And, you know, when I had my office, I had a beautiful office in La Jolla, San Diego, and they'd come into my space. I had this great interior design space and 
you're going to come in, you close the door behind them. I've got my lavender scented essential oils in the air. And these are all things that make me comfortable. Yeah. So I'm safe. I'm regulated. I'm ready to go. I've got my tea and I've got, you know, I'm 4'11". I'm short. I've got a shorter chair. So my taller folks are sitting across from me. (laughs) Not very comfortable in their short chairs. Um, (laughs) You know, and I hadn't really, I never considered, I have created a space that makes me feel comfortable and it may or may not be the best environment for them. Mm-hmm. When we went online, that was great. It was like, hey, call me from your favorite room in your favorite chair. Bring your tea or light the candle that you love. They could quite literally curate their space, their cocoon. Mm-hmm. And specifically for people with histories of sexual abuse, sexual mm-hmm. trauma or boundary violations, it felt a lot safer. Yeah. They weren't coming into my space. I wasn't closing the door. They were at home, snuggled up on the couch. Yeah. So it's like there were there were pros and cons to it. Definitely. And a lot of people who experience CPTSD have chronic pain. And so yeah. I found that it makes therapy a lot more accessible to be having it telehealth. And I think it also causes therapists to be presented with shadow work because Mm -hmm. whenever we're working with a client who is remote and we're not able to control their environment, Mm -hmm. I think that that can sometimes be a lot of like, can be very hard for people in the helping profession of not being able to control the environment. Oh yeah, definitely. And God, you mentioned the chronic pain aspect too. Uh, probably, honestly, upwards of 60% of my referrals now have some sort of syndrome, IBS, chronic pain, autoimmune, migraines, TMJ, Um, because somatic work has been effective with these sort of syndromes. Mm -hmm. I'm often getting clients with that sort of presentation. Absolutely. I was just saying today, I love working with people with gastrointestinal conditions. (laughs) I'm like, I am not afraid to talk about poop. I'm like, I think that we need to talk about it more often. Um, Got it from the rooftop. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Because I mean, and talking about just some of these topics that people may find uncomfortable, then we can be processing through the shame piece that affects people's bodies. Absolutely. Okay. So for you to dedicate three Uh years to somatics, (laughs) I think about that where you have your PhD, so you've already been through a lot of training. And so I'm guessing that maybe there was some sort of um, more than a curiosity, but this drive to be like something needs to change. Uh And I'm wondering if that's what you experienced and what drove you to somatics. Yes. So I graduated in 2014 with my doctorate and very traditionally talk therapy, psychoanalytics, which I am really grateful for, by the way, it was a great base of of working, a way of working with people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I went to a conference. Can you remember what exactly it was? It was just different modes of psychotherapy and you got to witness different demos. And I'm with a colleague at the time and we're like looking at the list of options and I'm like, somatic experiencing. Oh, that's that like woo woo body work, (laughs) hippie granola stuff. But for some reason, and I do find this fascinating, I was like, maybe I'll go and just kind of like, it's so radically different. Like, why not see what this is about? Yeah. And I go, and it was funny, because even when I came back for like the lunch break, because I ended up meeting back up with my colleague, she's like, how was it? And I'm like, tearing up. (laughs) I wasn't even the demo person. I was like, I just need to like learn more about this because, you know, I'd spent so much time analyzing and working with people from a headspace and kind of wondering why, man, we'd be years in psychoanalysis and kind of spending our wheels, especially with trauma. And then I see this demo and um, I related to the demo for one, he was working with somebody that was coming from religious trauma, mm-hmm. really strict, fundamental background, which I came from as well. And working with them in this like um, breath work and then mm-hmm. this sort of shaking response. And it was very subtle, 
nothing sensational or over the top, but just noticing how attuned he was to this person and how, how great she felt at the end of the session when they interviewed her. You know, how was that experience for you? I'm like, oh my gosh, like I want to find my own somatic practitioner, mm. um, which I did, which was phenomenal. And then looked into the training program and it's like, woo, that is a big commitment financially. It's a very expensive program as well as like time intensive, right? Three years. And, but I was really committed. Like it really, I started reading more of Peter Levine's books, listening to different podcasts. And it was just fascinated. It's like, wow, if I really want to do trauma work, I think this is where my heart is at. Yeah. Just thinking about that experience, you just really painted a picture about what you went through at that time mm-hmm. before you went to that did you have hopes for how religious trauma could be treated or what did it seem like the outlook was on it because it seemed like somatics yeah. just like brought you hope yeah it religious trauma hadn't even been discussed I had never heard that sounds weird to say I'd never heard that term because maybe it was out by then but People would say trauma, but I hadn't really seen somebody openly talk about fundamentalism, religious trauma, and and work with it. First time I'd seen it in a clinical space. So that got me thinking, right? It really was like a wake up of, even though I I think I'm in a good place with this, I'm feeling something. Mm. I'm feeling this pull to go deeper and work on this. Yeah. How did you start noticing the relationship with your clients changing and shifting as you moved into somatics work? (laughs) Oh, man, Uh, faster, which Mm -hmm. is ironic because somatic work, my intention is always to move slow (laughs) and and do it titrated. But yet, even with that, you people start to leave sessions over time, not immediately, right, feeling differently. Uh, there's all these great studies in somatic work where it's like when, when people are traumatized or they have ongoing trauma, they literally don't orient to the environment fully. Mm. There's a little bit of tunnel vision, which I also understand from mm-hmm. personal experience. And you do somatic work, nervous system work, you become more playful, you become more mm-hmm. curious. So people would walk into my office and go, have you always had that pink lamp? <laughs> It, I mean, oh, it's a new couch. And it seems simple, but to a somatic practitioner, it's like they're orienting to the things around them. They're becoming more curious. They're becoming more relationally attuned. Uh, oh, you have a, your voice sounds different today. Did, did you get a cold? There was a connection. Yes. I yeah. think with play, we can become so disconnected from our body yeah. whenever we get to this age of our childhood development where we believe that we have aged out of play Mm -hmm. and it's almost like this flip of a switch you know you hear so many stories about you know little girls or little boys last time of playing dolls for Mm -hmm. instance and people can a lot of times remember when they stopped playing and what that event was and uh, a lot of times I've heard people talk about it as though it were some kind of a light switch, or if they did play, they would play in secret. Mm-hmm. And so what it means for the body and for the mind to stop playing and where does that energy for play go mm-hmm. and how can we bring it back into the healing process? Yes. Yeah. And, and what that play does to a person, even posturally, Somatics Mm -hmm. focus, it's maybe the only treatment I know that focuses on posture. (laughs) And one of my trainers actually was a therapist and a physical therapist. Like he had been trained in both modalities. So he was a wealth of knowledge. Like he was literally learning structures of the body and the viscera and the bones. And I'm like, what is the point of this? But now when a client comes in and they notice they're turtled in a little bit, or they're Mm -hmm. wearing their shoulders up to their ears, or they're not breathing fully into their chest or their pelvis is tilted a certain way I might not say something right that might not be appropriate but it's it's in the back of my head I'm I'm noticing how the body is holding 
constricting and not open, not playful, not flexible. Yes. Are you familiar with the gestalt technique of looking at people's body postures and then mirroring them or asking them to make that posture the most exaggerated? Yep. That's a lot of, um, so somatic draws from a bunch of different, <laughs> bunch of different techniques. And one of the teachers in particular did a lot of that type of work. He's the one I'm mentioning actually. Uh, his name is Dave Berger. That's a physical therapist as well. And he does a lot of that. Yeah, that is something that I love in doing with my clients and it helps them become so much more aware. And I like watching like animals in the wild shows or like, you know, I, I like going and seeing nature preserves and and everything because I find it so fascinating whenever looking at the animals, the prey and the predators and how their body changes and then how much it relates to working as a therapist with clients and seeing their body change depending upon how they're feeling. And mm-hmm. I mean, in doing all remote work, you can even tell that. Yeah. Um, and so you don't have to necessarily see a whole person's body. I think that a lot of times, at least from my experience, I can tell from the shoulder blades up. Yeah, you're, you're so right on that. You probably too have developed some intuition over time of kind of a curiosity, right? When someone says something in particular, like, I wonder what is, I wonder if their feet are on the ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder if they're, they're clenching in their chair. Like I, you know, it's a curiosity that I have because I know the postures. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned that you're 411 and yeah. <laughs> I work with adult clients and I've worked with some adult clients who are under five feet. Mm-hmm. And then with me doing remote work, I didn't know that they were underneath five feet. Yeah. Then I'm wondering why every time they go to a public place, they don't feel grounded. And it's literally because they can't put their feet on the ground to be able to feel like that they are emotionally stabilized and in the best headspace that they can be in. This is going to sound maybe so funny and maybe dramatic, but really my whole life, because I am more petite, I've had to work around the structures of the world, like the chairs and, you know, how high things are and somatic experiencing. The first time I walked into class, they have the traditional like table and chairs, right? Mm-hmm. Which are pretty uncomfortable and like plastic. And I sat down, I put my laptop down and I sat, you know, as comfortably as I could, but it's always uncomfortable for me. My feet are not hitting the ground. And one of the first things he said was, so here's an option, guys, you can sit here if you want, or you can pull out the yoga mats and the bolsters, or, hey, if you, if you feel like walking around in the middle of class, as long as you don't walk around where the board is at, that's fine too. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Choices were offered. Attend to your body. Attend to yourself. You don't have to sit in discomfort. I mean, my nervous system relaxed just hearing that there was an option. You don't have to sit in discomfort. You can do what makes you feel a little bit more relaxed. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I love that so much. I (laughs) also love going to in-person conferences for therapists because they give us play-doh you know they give us toys and I'm like the world is is changing exactly you know I'm like crying because they're talking about sad things and I'm not putting on my therapist face and I'm just crying and playing with play-doh and I'm like this is the best thing ever it is right it's like this is healing allowing people and knowing that they might even retain the information better if they're not sitting in this hard yeah. chair the whole day. Oh, absolutely. Like, I love cooking with my clients, for instance, you know, oh, like, cool. that's so fun. Thanks. So with religious trauma, something that yeah. I'm really fascinated about in Abrahamic religions, mm-hmm. the posture of singing Mm-hmm. the posture of prayer. Yes. So I guess we can take evangelicalism for per, like for an example here. There are these different names that um, will ask what kind of an evangelical are you? 
and there will be hands down to the side where they're touching, you know, the bottom of your thigh right by the kneecap. You got the hands that are held out like, um, you know, you're asking, give me, give me. Then you got the hands that are out kind of like, I'm sorry that this is morbid, Jesus on a cross. And then you got the hands that are put the highest upward and you got the touchdown there. Yeah, I've seen that meme. I'm giggling because I've literally seen all these religious trauma memes and I'm like, yep. (laughs) And then you got the kneeling by a pew or by an altar. And so we were talking about postures Mm -hmm. and how postures can affect the way that we heal and process information and process emotions. So like, so if our body is like tense in one way, we're going to be receiving that information differently than if our body muscles were loose. So I'm fascinated by the postures of prayer and worship because I wonder how is information processed differently? Let's say if someone has their hands down at their side compared to someone who has their hands up like touchdown. What, what do you think? Ooh, I've actually never considered this before. Like I'm sitting here going, oh, okay. <laughs> like I've never considered. Honestly, it probably has less to do with this very specific posture and more to do with what is their, what's the meaning they put behind that. Mm. right so touchdown Mm -hmm. might be wonderful and ecstatic and they're jubilant or it might be I feel like I should be doing this because everyone around me is doing this yes right growing up um Pentecostal they're they speak in tongues they're extremely exuberant and for someone that had you know really difficult social anxiety performance anxiety as a kid Mm -hmm. being in the front row and raising my hands and feeling like I needed to be part of this, maybe even dancing in the front aisle because everybody else is going to dance. Mm-hmm. So that might make me putting the hands up feel really uncomfortable. Like that's not really what I want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there were a lot of different cultural pressures or impacts and mm-hmm. different interpretations about what posture would be like. I started thinking about posture whenever I was going back because I live in upstate New York. I live in a mountain town out here, but I had gone back to Indiana to visit and I um, came from a neighborhood that was very culturally diverse. And one of the cultural groups in my neighborhood of growing up was there were people who were Hasidic uh, Jews. And so It was during a festival time during one of their holy days. And, um, and so I started seeing some of the rabbis walking and they were bending their bodies, continuing to just be bowing as they were walking and reciting Mm -hmm. a holy text. And then I have had friends who are Muslim and then they told me about their prayer practices Mm -hmm. and then I started thinking about how I go to yoga and how the ways that I had observed and heard about Muslims and Jewish people prayed that it was very similar to the postures of yoga. Makes a lot of sense, right? And it's like, certainly if someone came into therapy and I saw that posture, I might just really be curious, like, is this posture aligned with how they want to be or is this feeling inauthentic or uncomfortable in some way yeah right I would get really curious about that I love that you're mentioning that I I pulled up an old photo of myself actually in my teen years recently when I was still very much in the religion and I've got this super long hair right we can't cut our hair wear pants or jewelry or makeup and I'm looking at the picture and I'm like wow like obviously I looked very very different very covered up but also it just, I could see the look on my face and the way I was holding my body just wasn't me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm a pretty outgoing person now and I, I like, you know, crazy styles and I tend to be funny and goofy. And this was very like subservient, honestly. The posture, just the facial expressions look very different than who I know myself to be today. Mm, yes. 
I have seen that of pictures of myself too. I don't have them here with me, but there's this somberness. There's not the playfulness. Mm -hmm. I'm also a a big goofball. Um, (laughs) And it's kind of eerie in looking at the photos of being a child and seeing that childhood not really be there in the posturing or the facial expression. Yeah. And it's healing in some way, maybe because I'm in a much better place and I had so many years of somatic work that I look and I'm like, oh yeah, look how far the the phrase I had in my head when I saw the picture is look how far we've come. Yes. Look how far we've come. Mm -hmm. We have choices now. We don't have to dress that way. We don't have to act that way. Um, I love that for us. Me too. <laughs> Me too. It's it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. This place that I live in, people ask me, well, where are you from originally? And I say, Indiana. And they said, Indiana, what brought you out all this way? And I say, well, you know, I actually came to fall in love with the Adirondack Mountains mm-hmm. and and they're like, well, how did you even hear about this place? Because a lot of people from the East Coast don't even know about this place. Mm, interesting. And I said, well, I grew up evangelical and I went to a camp out here in a place called Screwin Lake. They're always so secluded. It's <laughs> like these exactly. church camps are always like in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> no, it is so true. And I think that that's deliberate. I just kept going here. Like growing up and, but I always tell people a disclaimer. I'm like, I'm not evangelical anymore, (laughs) but I was like, you know, I found a new meaning for this place, but I fell in love with these mountains. And it's like, even though that I'm not evangelical anymore, sometimes I just like turning on some Aretha Franklin and hearing her sing some gospel And I think that there can be a lot of these traditions that happened in religion that can hold different meaning that can even be somatic healing in a way. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I emphasize that too, when I work with people, like, you know, they feel like, especially if they deconstructed and, and maybe they've left, right. Some people don't leave, which is fine. And some people do as, you know, yesterday I got scared and I wanted to pray and it's like, okay, then do it. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's this idea that if we deconstruct, we leave religion. And for some people, that's very valid. And others are like, hey, I still want to do this. Or maybe they they consider themselves atheists, but they have this impulse to pray and and they'd like to do that. Why not reclaim it? If you want to listen to the Mm -hmm. music and say a prayer, and that's helpful for you in some way, we get to decide that now. No one tells us if we get access to that or not anymore. Definitely. Something that was really helpful for me in my therapy process was my therapist was like, well, if you want to try doing these things, then try adding a curveball to how you're going to do it. <laughs> That's not hard. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, so it's like, like a curveball that I asked my clients to do is, well, if you're nervous to pray, what posture would you pray in before? Mm-hmm. And then what's going to be a way that you could change that posture? Or were you obligated to close your eyes during prayer before? Could you try by opening your eyes so that you yep. don't have that sensory deprivation? Choices. I know. The no choices are abundant. We don't have them. <laughs> we aren't given. It's like very, uh, especially the more fundamental you grew up, it, this is the way to do it. And yes. you know, any, any variation away from that is like, I mean, quite literally, like a heaven or hell thing, depending. (laughs) Thank you. Because with religious trauma, a lot of this is about the disconnection from the body. Things are very cerebral, very Mm -hmm. intellectualized. So if we're going to be doing a more intellectual type therapy, then that is just reinforcing that trauma. Yes. Right. Who knew? I didn't know when I started working with people <laughs> that they just didn't seem to get better, honestly, especially with the religious trauma. It's like, wow, we've talked about it, but like kind of seems like we're looping here and they're still having panic attacks and they're still having all these symptoms. Like what can we change mm-hmm. the body? 
get out of your head into your body? Where is it still yes. living? Where is it still residing? And how can I work with that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So whenever doing a session with a client, what does that look like for you and providing a somatic experiencing session? Different for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's almost hard sometimes. I get that question a lot <laughs> and I do my best and I'll do my best, but it's, like I said, I'm working so much off of what I'm seeing in front of me and what I'm experiencing in my nervous system and the coherence between the two of us or incoherence that, you know, for example, one client, a mentor of mine, when I was training and she might be watching one of my sessions would be like, this feels like watching paint dry. <laughs> and we laugh. Like, there's no, like we're moving real slow and there's not much going on here. And yet it was impactful. That's what that person needed. Very slow, attuned work they're very shut down they're very freezy we're gonna work real slow and then other people come in a million miles an hour and they're highly anxious and it's like hey what happens if we just get up for a second and we just take a walk around the room what just, mm -hmm. just pause what you're saying for a second and let's just mm -hmm. take a walk around the room feel your feet on the ground and and it's like oh wow that feels better i don't know why and we don't overanalyze we never dig Mm -hmm. so the why is really honestly a little irrelevant but yes does it, help? does it feel better so it's going to look really really different sometimes you get these big um, trauma releases right you get a yell you get a cry mm -hmm. but it doesn't and I, I want to kind of address that myth because <laughs> somatic experiencing mm -hmm. a lot of what you'll see online because it's fun to watch the more extreme expressions, mm -hmm. extreme releases, the shaking that goes to crying, um, mm -hmm. that does not need to happen for someone to quote unquote release their trauma. It might look like watching paint dry. It might be very tiny. Oh, when I feel that way, my, my fist starts to ball up and we work with the fist. Okay. What happens if you ball it up, you release it, you clench the jaw, you unclench the jaw. It, it might be much softer titrations and, and expansions, if you will. I just giggled a bit whenever you were saying this because <laughs> it reminded me so much about American Christianity oh, and yeah. how it is not like watching paint dry <laughs> and it is looking for that performance in a way. I mean, the Hillsong documentary yeah. demonstrates it very perfectly. Uh, and there yeah. for people who are not familiar with that. And this is the way that our culture and society has really become is looking for these grand reactions. Mm -hmm. And you can be making mental health progress by not having those grand reactions. And maybe that's the most progress that you can make is by not having this grandiosity. Yeah, and it might be too much. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll give an example, right? Biohacking is really big right now. And, and that's cool. Like the, the cold plunges and you'll see breath work things where online promoted where it's like, come and do this intense breath work and we're gonna scream and we're gonna cry. Some of my clients have gone to those and been like, that was dope. It was amazing. I feel great on top of the moon and it did something. And other people come out panicked and terrified and overwhelmed. Mm. It's too big, too much, too soon, which is mm -hmm. trauma. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, we have to be really careful not to have to always look for that big expansion. The nervous system generally does better in smaller titrations over time. A quick fix is a, a good seller, but it might not really be how the nervous system feels. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm just giggling over here because <laughs> a lot of times whenever I hear people say, I really, really want to do EMDR. Yeah. And I ask them before telling them that I'm trained in it. I say, well, why do you want to do EMDR? Like, right, like what types of therapy have you tried before? Yeah. You know, and they'll say something like CBT. And I'm like, okay, what else? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, then, uh, and then that, that's it. And so I'm like, so what is like the deep reason about why you want to do EMDR? And here's, here are the two common responses I get. 
because I would rather not like to talk in therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. number two, because it's quick. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love that we're talking about this. I seriously do. I'm like cracking up. Like, you're talking so much shit about EMDR. So sorry, <laughs> therapist. I'm so sorry. If you love EMDR, and, and hey, you will see it on my website. I do EMDR. Still offer it. Um, it's, I don't hate EMDR. I'm, I'm mostly joking here. It's, it's really just that people have to be so clear that it's not a cure-all pill. It's for specific incidents. Yep. I've really, I've had the most luck with EMDR with people that come in there like this weird thing happened on vacation. I had a medical thing and, and that's what we work on. That's it. Yes. And, Shock but, trauma. But, yeah. But the yep. majority of clients that come in are not coming in with that. And it's, yeah. it's a lot. It's overwhelming. It's hard mm-hmm. to stay with one topic because there are lots of things. Mm-hmm. In somatics, we call it coupling dynamics. Mm-hmm. When I start to think about the sunset, I think about that time I almost drowned. I think about the time my mom neglected. Like it literally pops off, fires off into something else mm-hmm. by no fault of their own. There's a lot to work with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right on. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't want to get canceled by EMDR therapists here, but, uh, but I, I mean, I, I am open about how I, I feel about this, but you know, I, I like to say one size doesn't fit all, you know, and like, and that's something that's really part of somatics about how one size doesn't fit all with it. And I think with part of this, why I'm shitting on EMDR (laughs) is because I just want people to know that there's other things out there. They have a great PR campaign or something because everyone knows about it, but not about some of the other um, body oriented methods. Yeah. And I think with part of this too, because of the physiological train, like the physiological changing of the brain with PTSD, people with PTSD like to have structure. They like to have predictability in a way, even comfort and chaos, like to have some predictability there. And with EMDR, that is predictable. There's literally a script being followed. Until it's it's not predictable, right? Exactly. (laughs) Until 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 their nervous system, yeah, is overwhelmed. Yep. I guess with part of this, my brain just started going down a rabbit trail (laughs) with that one of thinking about how many people have to go on disability because of EMDR. Have you seen that before where you practice? Not so much the disability piece, um, but like I would say a great percentage of my referrals as well have done EMDR before. And I'm like, hmm. Tell me about that experience. And it's not all negative. It's just like, how far did that get you? Or I'll, I'll have them say like, I don't feel better or I felt better, but now I don't. And it's like, okay. Or they're very shut down and they're sort of telling me the trauma story and there's just no, they're not embodied. And I'm like, what happened? Like we've gone offline. Like, you know, yeah, um, yeah we've good, we don't want to numb from the trauma. We want to be able to have the, the container or the flexibility within the nervous system that when we go there, we're connected, we're secure. But yeah, that was a really difficult time for me. Yeah. Speaking of container. Yeah. So that was something that my instructor really just honed in on, on the mm-hmm. training for EMDR is learn how to help your client contain the memory. Mm-hmm. If you can't, if, if the client can't learn how to contain it, then they're not ready to process a memory yet. Mm-hmm. And what I think happens a lot for people whose PTSD symptoms worsen with EMDR, it's because the person practicing has not yep. created, has not created it. Yeah. 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 And I think with that, you know, in building those skills, that's important for any kind of therapy whenever working with trauma, because 
a person in healing from trauma, it can be deeply uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same point too, a person should still be able to be able to do things in their lives to be able to sustain them and empower them through the process. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. And it's like, with somatics, we're, we're working on the container a lot mm-hmm. with resourcing, orienting, and attunement. Attunement is huge. Like, especially when I think of PTSD, do you remember the, the, the still face experiment where the, it's kind of unethical, but back in the day, they would have the mom do the completely blunt face and they would see how the infant or toddler responded. And, you know, not surprising, the, the infant would become extremely distressed because mom was out to space. Mom was not having any facial responses to the baby. And I think of that because people with CPTSD, especially childhood trauma, it's like, that's so much a part of our experience where we didn't have attunement or we didn't have an empathetic witness in the face of relational wounding. So when someone comes into my office, I think, I'm going to spend a lot of time, you know, traditional therapists might say rapport. So that's a piece of it. But building that attunement between the two of us so that if trauma becomes overwhelming to their nervous system, a topic becomes overwhelming. What do we do when a little kid gets upset? We hold them. We have them look or look at the bird, look, oh, and they start to giggle and coo and they watch how we are calm and they become calm. Mm -hmm. The relational component to healing CPTSD that, that can't be ignored. And, you know, even with EMDR, right, if you jump into that too soon, what's the worst part of your trauma? Mm-hmm. You haven't spent enough time working with what do I do when this person starts to get overwhelmed? Can we anchor with each other? Then you're going to have a problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I just love how you spoke about this. Also, I a little fun fact here. I worked on a research study about still face. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I know it. And it was about conflict resolution and infant mental health. Yeah, it was pretty fascinating. But I guess with part of this too, like it's really about developing this relationship, right? Like uh, whenever we're looking at research, it's not so much about what interventions are being used by a therapist, but it's about that relationship that you have. Do you have trust there? Like, right. what are those core foundational elements between the therapist and between the client? Yes. And, you know, and you were talking about the reflection where of looking face to face. And I think, you know, in that disconnect that clients can have with therapists or if therapists are feeling more disconnected with their clients lately, like Mm -hmm. then asking like, well, what disconnect am I feeling in other areas of my life and processing through some of that. But I guess, you know, in terms with therapists building some of this rapport with trauma, like, what are some ways that you start in working with clients to be building that relationship with them? So much of it truly starts with a consult call before I ever even agree to take a client on, right? I'm seeing if we vibe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm seeing, right? Because it's like um, all the great somatic training in the world isn't going to help if I am not the somatic practitioner for them. And there's no yeah. problem with them. I want to make that so clear. It's just like, is this a good nervous system to nervous system connection? Or are we kind of pinging on each other and throwing each other off? Something about our nervous system doesn't mesh well. I I need to know if this is somebody that we can develop a comfort with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And that won't happen automatically, but I do start to get a sense of it from some of these initial chats that we have. As I'm working with them, I always tell them, it's basically like three to hire, <laughs> three to hire. You know, if, if the consult call goes well and we decide we're going to work together, commit to at least three sessions. Um, because, yeah, because mm-hmm. the first session, a lot of times people are nervous, including myself. Of course, it's mm-hmm. a new person. And we want to see if in three sessions 
we start to really get comfortable with each other. We start to have these weird senses of humor and wow, mm -hmm. that's so weird. We grew, both grew up in this, you know, weird religious stuff. Um, it doesn't have to be the same story by any means, but you can start to tell if someone can unarmor a little bit and relax around you. And if they can't, it just might be a discussion about who they might be a better fit to work with, what mm -hmm. personality structures might be a better fit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we go from there. Oh, I love that so much. Yes. <laughs> Whenever I was a kid, I was a picky eater. And my older sibling said, you can't say you don't like a food unless if you haven't tried it three different ways. Yeah. <laughs> Something with the threes. It's very, I think very so. Christian, very Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Where did we get the threes? <laughs> yes. And then we can decide on the third try if it is sanctified or unsanctified. <laughs> <laughs> See where we land. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. I love it. I love it. So I guess with people who maybe do not have a somatic therapist in mm -hmm. their area or don't have the funds or resources to be able to have somatic therapy, what could be one thing for someone to be doing at home during the summer as a somatic practice? Well, so I have, I have two things right in mind is so the SEI website, Somatic Experiencing International has an exhaustive directory, like even outside of the country. Some of us are therapists, right? And it's like me, I only practice in California. Some of us are not landlocked, we're coaches and we work with anybody. So there's some more accessibility even there is you don't necessarily have to worry about finding a somatic practitioner in your area unless you want to work with a, a somatic practitioner that's also a licensed therapist in your state. You can also filter. So if someone has health insurance, a lot of us take, I do too. We take health insurance. So, right, I have some cash pay clients, I have some health insurance. You can filter on the website your insurance, you know, Aetna or whatever, and it will show you practitioners that take that insurance or offer sliding scale. So there are some options even within the directory in the space. If that's not accessible, there's a lot of work that they can start to do at home. I wouldn't recommend, again, any major sort of going to a workshop and having this ecstatic scream or something. If they've never done any body work, I wouldn't recommend anything big like that. I'm a big fan of going to Kundalini yoga, actually. <gasps> Me yeah. too. Yeah. And it, it doesn't have to be a spiritual thing. If spiritual vibes are not your thing, it's more that they're really going slow and working with breath and working with postures and just body awareness in general. A lot of my clients, actually, that's the first place I'll start to recommend is doing a gentle yoga vinyasa or kundalini and beginning to see what that's even like to start orienting to your body. Yeah, absolutely. With kundalini in my area, how it's marketed anyway. So I don't know if this is generally how it's marketed, but yeah. it's marketed towards reconnecting with your feminine energy. Oh, and I haven't heard that. <laughs> oh, okay. So I guess this is like something to my area. I don't know if this is how it is in other areas, but I'm a non-binary person and I was like, you know what? I'll show up anyway. And then I ended up inviting in the future one of my cis male friends. I was like, hey, you should come to this. Although they were talking about the divine feminine energy, that's what they called it. At the same point too, I felt like it was all gender affirming and how we can all have feminine oh, energy no, within nice. us. Yeah. 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 Cause the terminology definitely I'd be like, mm, what? Uh, I haven't heard that. <laughs> you might've just been one lucky person or something, but um, I don't know. Maybe I almost joined a cult. I, you may have, it's, you know, it's within us to be sucked into that. So it's possible. But um Oh my goodness. Yeah. And again, I never want to like across the board, like do this thing and, you know, big advocate for try it and pay yeah. attention to if you feel comfortable, if you like it, if it's doing anything for you. Um, and if it's not, don't go back. Find something else. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, hey, I could talk to you for a very long time, but. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
I have one last question for you. Yes. And that is, if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self about liberation, what would that be? Letting yourself be open to evolving. Um, evolve is a big word for me coming from, you know, Christianity. Um, yeah. but I mean, evolving the sense of, you know, not being so rigid with like, I am this type of person and this is how I practice and this is what I do. Um, I am not who I was 10 years ago and mm-hmm. um, five years ago, like even my story with somatics being like, this is hippy dippy. And now my office is covered in crystals. So <laughs> And I love that. I love that I've given myself, you know, the ability to do the things that are resonating. And hey, maybe two years from now, it won't resonate. I don't know. But I'm open to that changing. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Well, hey, I would love for you to come to upstate New York sometime. And there's a crystal shop out here. That is the most magical one I've ever seen in my whole life. There's these vintage furniture pieces there. It's yeah. overlooking the mountains. Okay. And so, I just think it would be a somatic dream. Okay. Yes, perfect. Completely. I sold you even before my pitch ended. I love it. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Definitely up my alley these days. Thank you so much for joining us on the Liberated Porch podcast today. If you liked what you heard, please rate, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, this is your host, Kit Morgan.